Hello and welcome to UK Life Abroad. What are Ukraine's two biggest exports? This week, we dive into the influence of the national Ukrainian dance group Vitsky, as well as Ukraine's ever-developing soccer league. Both have helped to spread the Ukrainian brand around the globe. This and more on Zakhrodonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. For those who have seen uh, short news and for those that haven't, we did mention that on Monday, the deputies from the Sutra Territorial Commu- uh, Community were seeing the national anthem of Hungary alleging ju- uh, allegedly during their Pledge of Allegiance ceremony after their recent local elections. And so Ukraine has come to question Hungary's interference in these in Zakarpatia, which is uh, is an oblast bordering Hungary with a large minority of Hungarians in there. Now, Ukraine has had previous conflicts with Hungary over language laws and other issues within Zakarpatia, but this is a pretty serious one because now they're claiming that um, Hungary is trying to interfere with Zakarpatia and try and make it a more Hungarian area. Yeah, and it's a pretty serious issue because during uh, Ukraine's local elections, which were held recently, um, Ukraine accused Hungary of actively campaigning for the party of Hungarians in Ukraine. Um, and they, you know, they called the ambassador for a chat about it and banned two Hungarian officials from entering the country. So I think it's, you know, quite a serious escalation if there are now, you know, elected officials in Ukraine singing the Hungarian national anthem during their Pledge of Allegiance to Ukraine. Though there was, um, in, in the video, it only shows them singing in the Hungarian national anthem, but um, the head of the community council, he mentioned that they first sung the Ukrainian national anthem first, then followed by uh, with the Hungarian national anthem. But there's... I don't know. In my opinion, I still feel like it, like in Australia, at any official event, it's only the Australian national anthem that's sung. Yeah. Like, what do you guys reckon? Unless there's another na- uh, nation there, isn't there? Or- yeah, if, uh, they only sing the other national anthem if, like, a f- official dignitary is there. Yeah, but it's not at their, at, like, actual inaugurations, basically. So, I... Yeah, yeah like, it, like when Scott Morrison, like, you know, swears his oath to become Prime Minister, they only sing the Australian anthem. Yeah, he wouldn't not- sing any other one. Yeah, he's not singing some New Zealand one or, like, some Asian... One, he's only singing the Australian one, so. And, yeah, we recently had all those um, issues with um, members of parliament that had dual citizenship. So, it would be like any of those members deciding, yes, I have dual citizenship and yes, I'm going to sing the um, New Zealand national anthem, for example. And that would have made that situation much worse because the whole thing was if you if you are a dual citizen, there's the possibility that you might have dual allegiance to uh, another country. And so, and I think we should highlight that Ukraine only recognizes single citizenship. Yeah, yeah. So, especially given that there have been these um, issues in the past with, um, you know, Hungary attempting to influence um, like voters in the recent uh, elections that took place. And so, it kind of feels to me, I don't know, maybe this is taking it too far, but 
around the 1930s in Austria when there was all these debates about, oh, you know, Austria speaks German, so technically we should be un- uh, considered as part of, um, you know, the German Reich and all these things. So, it kind of reminds me of that. Well, it kind of goes to, because um, I know in Hungary, they have a big issue with how much territory they lost after World War One, And so, even to this day, they still strongly, like, have maps of what greater Hungary should be. And it, like, goes into parts of Romania, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, Slovakia, Ukraine. And they, you know, strongly pushed that they were, you know, unfairly lost these lands. Yeah, no, they should claim it back. But then Poland can do the same. Germany can do the same. Uh, Ukraine can do the same. So, so it's opening yeah. a can of worms if you start going into that. Is that Kapacha, um, like, disproportionately populated with no. Hungarians? So is that just... It's, um, so, like, as in any country, like, the areas right along the border have, like, a higher proportion of whatever nationality lives on the other side of the border. So, like, you'll have, like, cities along the Ukrainian-Hungarian border that have, like, you know, 30% Hungarian or, like, 40% Hungarian, um, but the majority is still, like, Ukrainian. There's a map showing, like, the proportions of, like, Hungarians and Ukrainians and Romanians as well, right, uh, along that eastern border. Western. Uh, sorry, western border. And so, I think it's, like, the first couple of kilometers, it's, like, 80% ethnically Hungarian, then uh, a little bit after them, I think it's like only a couple more Ks. It's like less than 80%. And then the rest of the oblast is like majority Ukrainians. So, like, it's a, it's like any other place really where along the border, like Alexa mentioned earlier, um, there's a huge uh, minority or... Yeah, like yeah, they're, they're of a them living minority. Yeah. yeah. So, Alexa, what was um, like the government's response to this? Um, so, after the video came out, Ukraine's Minister of Foreign Affairs um, called Hungary's ambassador in Ukraine for a chat at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and basically strongly condemned um, Hungary's, you know, repeated actions against Ukraine. And, you know, it's all, it's been building up. So, since 2017, when Ukraine passed its language laws, stating that all students that go to a state school have to learn Ukrainian. Um, Hungary's basically been trying to test what they can get away with with Ukraine. And so they're blocking, like, for example, Ukraine's meetings with NATO. They're, um, you know, interfering now in Ukraine's local politics. And I think, like, you know, their end goal is to probably get greater autonomy for Hungarians living in Ukraine. But Ukraine's a unitary state. And, you know, we already saw what happened with Crimea when they got autonomy. So I don't think any Ukrainian government... Is willing to give that up, really. Yeah. So, for those who are in tune with uh, the world of Ukrainian dance, um, the name Virsky is one that is not only well known, but I would say it's kind of like the 
gold standard is that the correct term i guess for um ukrainian dancers all the way around the world so the dancers of vitsky these guys and girls are considered best in the business for not just their physical abilities but also for their creative and forward-thinking approach to ukrainian dance and they kind of balance this out by keeping traditional elements while also um, spicing up their choreography with uh uh, new techniques, uh, new variations, and all these other things that they can add into their dance. Now, looking at their website, uh, Virsky stated that their goal is collecting, investigating, and maintaining the national traditions, customs, and rituals of Ukrainian folk. And they go further on to describe that their shows are uh, great canvases about past and contemporary life of Ukrainians. So, that's kind of what made Virsky uh different in the sense that they were trying to tell a story almost or or present present more than just dance to their audiences but they were actually trying to present uh the lives of Ukrainians and different elements of their culture to Ukrainian or to non-Ukrainians around the world now this popularity um when when it comes to Virsky is massive so when you're looking at their um the the applicants to the the dance group for every vacancy that they have there's actually a hundred applicants that are waiting for that spot and when looking at their children's group for every um, dancer in their ch- uh, sorry for every child in their children's group there's fifteen applicants so that gives you a sense of exactly how many people um, really want to take that next step. I'd uh, say it's probably what, like, the dream of any, like, Ukrainian dancer in the diaspora to, mm-hmm. like, w- work your way up to be able to dance with Vitsky. Yeah, definitely. Even, even getting to a point where, like, you dance, like, professionally, like, that's pretty a big achievement that you can achieve. Yeah. Yeah, and we know someone from uh, Shumka who dances very well um, and still say, like, Vitsky's, you know, that next level in, in their abilities. Um, so, what do you guys know about Virsky? So, I know, like, um, like we've, like, copied some of their dances when, like, when we do Ukrainian dancing because they're, like, you know, so iconic. I don't know if you should say copied them. Isn't that copyright? Well, you could say that we've been adapted. inspired. Yeah, yeah adapted. But, but, bro, Paul's and Nights is a Virsky dance. Like, it's an original Virsky dance. Yeah, that's true. So, I don't think, like, uh, choreographers should be, like, limited to just making up their own dances. I feel like they should be able to at least, like, present someone else's one as well, even, like, minor tweaks and stuff. Oh, there is that, but there's a point where you have to say... No, but it's always in the program, like, inspired by Vitsky. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, uh, what... um, Vitsky's famous for, like, their style of Hopak, Polza Nights, Zaporozhet Zadunayem... Like, they're iconic Vitsky dancers like, that were choreographed by Vitsky. And I think most Ukrainian dance groups around the world have done at least one version of it. Yeah, so when we're looking into why they are so popular, this comes back to Pavlo Vitsky, who was the obviously the founder of the group. And it was his approach to Ukrainian dance that made them so unique. So, back in 2004, the New York Times actually wrote a piece on Vitsky and they stated that uh, Virsky, Pavlov Virsky, knew how to capture the essence of folk dances and to recreate them as choreography for viewers, not participants. So, this is looking at people who 
can appreciate dance even though they do not dance. So as dancers, we we look at that and we think, oh, that would be a cool move to try out, or you know, oh, that's that's impressive how they've done this. But he was trying to bring it to people who aren't so in tune with the actual dancing part. He wanted to make it, you know, accessible for all. Um, they then continue to say, it is easy to criticize such companies with roots in the Soviet era as heedless of strict authenticity. Yet these were theatrical dance companies, not ethnographic research institutes. Artistically, the Virsky troupe was one of the best. So basically what they're trying to say is that Virsky wasn't just a research institute that was looking into Ukrainian dance. They were actually trying to bring a theatrical element to their performances and they were trying to focus on Ukrainian authenticity. Uh, Alex, I know before you were mentioning that Soviet-era dance companies kind of had a lack of authenticity to a degree. Well, yeah, it kind of stems to the fact that, you know, the Soviet Union was trying to remake all the different histories of the people within it to suit, like, Soviet history and to, like, mould everyone into that, you know, uh, homo Sovieticus kind of mentality where it's, you know, a new type of human being. Yeah, and Virsky kind of, because they fought against that with his style of dance. I think they were just so unique that yeah. they couldn't be moulded, in a sense. Oh, that's a good way to put it. So, Alexa... um, since Pavlov Virsky was the one who started all this, what can you tell us about him? He lived a very interesting lifestyle. So he was born in 1905 in Odessa, and after finishing uh, the music and drama school in Odessa, he uh, went on to study in the Theatre Technicum in Moscow. And during the 1920s, he, you know, worked in your typical, you know, op- uh, like ballet dance schools where he did performances from Esmeralda to Swan Lake. So he has like a v- he had a very varied start and then it wasn't until the 1930s when he started to produce more ukrainian focused pieces and he was part of the first tour of moscow of the ukrainian literature and art festival in 1936 where he helped choreograph performances of uh, famous ukrainian plays such as natalka poltavka and zaporozhet zadunayem and you know he wowed the audiences in moscow with his um with his work um it was also during this period that he founded the State Folk Dance Ensemble of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which was later renamed in his honor after his death. Um, during World War II, Virsky, like many other Soviet performers, went onto the front lines to entertain the troops. And after the war, he became the artistic director of the Red Army Song and Dance Ensemble, which today is the official song and dance ensemble of the Russian army. So, if you go on the Wikipedia page, his name comes up as one of its three main artistic directors in its history. So, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, in 1955, Virsky returned back to Ukraine and retook the helm of his dance group and for the next 20 years built it up as, you know, the premier Ukrainian dance company in the world. And after his death, it was, as I said, renamed in his honor. And to show you how important Ukrainians saw Virsky, even like during the Soviet Union, he is buried on Baikove Cemetery, which is this big famous cemetery on the outskirts of Kiev where famous Ukrainians are buried, such as Lysil Kryenka and Mikhailo Hrushevsky. Hmm. That's a pretty high honor. So, you know, it's a fa- like he's buried in like, it's like the equivalent of Lechakovsky Svented in Lviv. Well, I mean, another great honour is the fact that they minted a coin and a stamp about him. So in 2005, the National Bank of Ukraine circulated a commemorative 
two hryvnia coin and the postal service uh, created a 45 kopeka stamp to celebrate 100 years since his birth. Um, the front of the coin features a composition symbolizing Ukrainian dance, so like a nice stylization of um, flowers and ribbons surrounding the small national emblem of Ukraine. And on the reverse side, there is a half-face portrait of Virsky, his name and the years of his life, so 1905 to 1975. Doesn't he also have, isn't he a, a people's artist of Ukraine as well? Doesn't he have that award? Yeah. I like just a side note, when looking at the coin, maybe it's just me, I kind of feel like he looks like Ivan Franko. A bit. Oh, with the moustache? Yeah, moustache. It's more the hair. The hairline. Like that, yeah. The hairline, yeah. yeah. I thought that That back style. Yeah, cool. Considering that Virsky is the largest dance group in Ukraine, do you know anyone that is famous from Virsky or some awards that people were given? I mean, not personally, but uh, to date, over 1,000 dancers have passed through the group. Uh, and in 2015, five of those people in the group were recognised as People's Artists of Ukraine, and 35 were recognised as Distinguished Artists. Um, and what's cool is that the um, director of Virsky, Miroslav Van Tuch, um, in 2004, he was awarded the title Hero of Ukraine, which is Ukraine's highest honour. And he's only the third director in Virsky's entire history. So, do you have to be an already amazing dancer to join Virsky? Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'd expect so. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure what the um, the joining process is for the actual dance group itself, but every year they run this summer academy course where anyone from all over the world who dances Ukrainian dance can join um, and participate with the Virsky dancers to um, push themselves to dance at their highest levels. Um, now, only a select few are chosen to participate in this program each year and uh, to enrol you need to send a letter talking about yourself your experience in Ukrainian dance as well as a reference letter from your instructor detailing your discipline behavior and why you should receive this training um, but the the program itself would consist of every morning a ballet or a character class followed by technique training of how to do the jumps, the tricks and the turns that make Virsky dancing so iconic. Um, then the afternoon would be spent learning uh, Virsky dances from all regions of Ukraine. And then throughout the program, there's also the opportunity to sit in on a live orchestra rehearsal. Um, so whenever Virsky performs, they have like this, I don't know, how many, however many piece orchestra. I'm pretty sure it's a full orchestra. A full orchestra. Um, perform and do like all the iconic um, melodies and stuff that, are associated with Ukrainian dance. So you get to um, sit on the sit in on their rehearsal, meet the costume team as well. So you know, figure out or learn um, about the significance of all the different colors and the the materials and stuff like that. And then watch a full dress rehearsal, and in true Ukrainian style, finish it off with a zabava. Oh, of course, got to have a zabava. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty hectic day. No, it's like I don't know. Eight or nine days. Like, it's not all in one day. Oh, okay. okay. I thought well, it was like, all that. that's what you did for like the whole day, every day. <laughs> and it's a buffer at the end. Every day was just a buffer. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, it sounds intense. I feel like we'd all die if we tried to do that. But it would be good, though, because like as dancers, I feel like we look up to people in Vitsky. Yes, yeah, because it's always like the first thing you show people. Um, 
they have never seen Ukrainian dancing. They're like, oh, what do you do? And it's like, oh, I do Ukrainian dancing. Oh, can you show me? And usually you don't have your own video. So you go into YouTube and you find Vitsky's Hopak or whatever or um, some other dance that they've done. And you show them like, they're like, oh, wow, can you do this? Can you do that? And then you're like, oh, I can kind of do this. I can kind of do that. Or, <laughs> or if you, you want to go don't bold. Don't brag that too much. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you like brag out and you'd be like, oh, I can do all of this. This stuff is all easy. And then they're going to ask you, oh, can you show us? And it's like, ah, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Not in the workplace. <laughs> like I can do one spin. <laughs> yeah. And as a dancer as well, I like to, like, I feel like we can get a lot of good ideas from Virsky. Like, I'm, I'm sure everyone's here, you've seen those videos on YouTube of their, like, rehearsals where they show their, the, the insane spins that they do, their, their floor routines and their, their solo practices. And looking at that, you feel like, oh, that might be the goal for the year because I want to be able to do, you know, this at this particular speed or I want to be able to do the splits and have my legs as straight as they do. And, yeah, they're good, they're good like, uh, for inspiration and, you know, you pick one of their things that I'm sure they can do easily and we make it and like that's like our stretch goal kind of thing for whatever solos we want to do. Nice goal for 2021. Well, one of them was meant to be my goal for this year, but I, yeah, obviously COVID, but... Um, <laughs> no, um, do it in your living room. In front of the TV. It's the one where it's like the, um, the Strupach, but he's doing it like super, super fast. Um, oh, yeah, because Virsky's Shopak is like the cheeky one where you're only doing it halfway. Well, there was two. There was one where it's like the proper one where they're doing like the high kicks. Yeah. There was another one where the guy's feet are moving like so fast you can barely like see them move. It's insane. And you can actually hear his like feet going. It's like oh, <laughs> it's the speed. But um, yeah. You know what like amazes me is that when they're doing those sorts of things, they're all in time, like all their feet are like... Oh, yeah. Up, yeah, up in the air at the same time. Like, Why are the insane. premier group of Ukraine? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you don't want some like ragtag group of like amateurs dancing. And it's like everyone's like <laughs> one jump and then like two seconds later, there's another jump. And it's like, oh, look, it's like uh, a Mexican wave going through. It's like <laughs> so the fun. famous thing we were doing, like the Presica I and mean, like all the boys are holding arms. Oh, yeah. And it's like a Mexican wave. You all go down different times. <laughs> <laughs> so you start off well and everyone just starts like collapsing at their own rate. I think yeah. we can say that just like Virsky, I think, is one of Ukraine's best exports. And I think like for some countries... Uh, like, for example, the Journal do Brazil wrote in 1983 that when Virsky came to tour the country, it was the highlight of their cultural calendar for the year. And I think it shows you the caliber that, you know, the New York Times writes an article about them. Like, in Brazil, it was the biggest cultural event to happen of the year. It shows you how, like, well Virsky represents Ukraine and, like, the positive effects it does for Ukraine diplomatically. So, moving on from Virsky to Ukraine's other most famous export, soccer, or football as the rest of the world likes to call it. But, because we live in Australia, I think we're all going to automatically default to saying soccer. NRL is our football. <laughs> <laughs> and that the hate comments roll in. <laughs> um, so, Ukraine has a very long association with history and the sport is considered um, the most popular in Ukraine. And it's also the sport that Ukraine probably excels the best in in competition sports. 
Um, and Ukraine's history with football stretches all the way back that there were teams even way back as the Austro-Hungarian Empire and like the Russian Empire. There were Ukrainian soccer teams, which I think is quite cool. Um, during the Soviet Union, in the early days um, of the Union, Ukraine had a national team and it was considered one of the better national teams until all the teams were merged into that into a single Soviet national team. But even the Soviet national team was dominated by Ukrainians. And in the in the dying days of the Soviet Union, out of the 11 players that would usually like be on the starting pitch, seven of them were Ukrainian. And so there was a big controversy when Ukraine gained its independence that Russia gained all of the Soviet Union's victories and like points. And Ukraine had to start from scratch, even though like a good chunk of those points were earned by Ukrainians and they should have probably been split proportionately. It's same like with everything else that like Yeah, Ukraine all the gold medals part. that Russia has, like a lot of them come from the Soviet Union. Which is like they should have started over again, really, in, in a sense. They've gotten rid of them all and no one had them. Well they yeah, they should have just left that. the Soviet Union and then just created Russia with zero. Yeah. But can you still have a team that doesn't compete anymore? No, you just leave them on the tallies. They're just they're just like a historic team or whatever. I think. I think so, you can have them, can't you? Yeah. I think. Okay. Does that mean like the Ottomans? Because I'm pretty sure the Ottoman Empire was around when the Olympics restarted. I don't know if they competed though. <clears throat> Good point. Never mind. Scratch that. The modern Ukrainian soccer team was established in 1992, and they played their first match on the 29th of April against Hungary, which they unfortunately lost in a 3-1 defeat. Oh, well, it's a, it's a start. But that first competition was actually called Veshta Liha, or Top League, and it was the shortest of all. It only started in March and was over in a matter of three months, with Tavria Simferopol earning the title. Right after that, the organisers of the competition switched to a late summer to late spring format with a significant winter break, and that calendar has been used ever since. In 2008, the Veshta Liha became known as Ukraine's Premier League, and it has been the country's top-level category since independence. Despite football's immense popularity in Ukraine, uh, the league has struggled through the years with huge problems, uh, the war in eastern Ukraine being the latest and possibly the biggest of them all. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, Shakhtar Donetsk, which is Ukraine's second or first best team these days, um, had to completely relocate from Donetsk temporarily to Lviv, and now I think they play in Kiev or Kharkiv. Yeah, so the football team's now moved to Kiev due to the whole war in eastern Ukraine. Other than that victory that Simfonopol had, um, only two other teams have won a championship title, and those have been Dynamo Kiev with 15 league titles and Shakhtar Donetsk with 13. I think now Ukraine's Premier League is starting to balance out a bit more because I think some of the other teams are, are having better seasons. Um, and also I think Dynamo Kiev is starting to struggle a bit more these days. Okay, I have a question. So, does that mean all these Premier Leagues versus each other in different countries? So, yeah, it's like the English Premier League. So, all the teams play each other, I mean, pretty sure, like, at least twice. Yeah. And in the end, like, you know, it's the finals and who does the best. They wouldn't be in other countries. It would just be held in Ukraine, though, right? Yeah, it's all held in Ukraine. It's sort of like UEFA, but, like, for just Ukraine. But then how are they versing Real Madrid? Yeah, so the winner is uh, the winner of Ukraine's Premier League is then drafted into UEFA's Champions League, while the runner-up goes into UEFA's Europa League, and that's where they verse all the European teams. Gotcha. This may be a very unpatriotic question, but which is Ukraine's national team? So okay. during the Soviet Union, Dynamo Kiev 
was seen as the unofficial national team of Ukraine. But these days, um, everyone in Ukraine, no matter where they're from, always cheers on the national squad. And it was seen as one of the big, like, unifying factors for Ukraine. So, it was pretty cool in 2012 when they held the Euro Championships in Ukraine, how united everyone was. Like, even people in Donetsk, like, the stadium was packed with blue and yellow. That's all with Shevchenko, right? The national team? Yeah. Got it. Nailed it. Okay. So, he's also head coach now. I got one soccer fact. (laughs) Andrei, give us more. Yeah, sure. So, some more interesting facts about the football club. So, Ukraine's best match was against San Marino with a 9-0 win on September 6, 2013, followed by their worst defeat, which was Ukraine versus France, 1-7 on 7th of October, 2020. So... Pretty big, like, loss, but considering how um, two, like, the different countries are, like, San Marino and France, like, they're way Completely levels. different yeah. leagues. <laughs> yeah, so, like, we were, like, we're, like, in a sense, we're pretty much average because, like, we smashed the lower team, but then, like, we still get smashed I'd by, like, I argue Ukraine's in the, like, the top end of, like, they're not the... So let me say, I, I say I'd like, argue Ukraine is on the higher end of Europe's soccer teams, but they're not like on the level of England, Germany, Spain. But that's because they don't have the money to compete. Yeah, they they fluctuate between like matches. Like but sometimes Ukraine, they do really well. Ukraine is currently ranked as the twenty fourth best team globally, so they're doing pretty well. Out of how many? It's I'm pretty sure there's over hundred and fifty teams on UEFA's on FIFA's um, register. Register. Okay. That's- yeah, so with all the money that goes into, you know, all these soccer teams and all the soccer matches and everything, it got me thinking, well, who backs uh, these soccer teams in Ukraine? So specifically when looking at Shakhtar Donetsk, it's the president of the club is a guy called Renat Akhmertov. And this guy is actually the richest man in Ukraine. So he became president of the club in 1996. And currently he is... V- estimated to be worth about $2 billion. Um, it's believed he's actually gone down in his, say, evaluation of his uh Yeah, but that's wealth. because of, like, most... Of, he's from Donetsk, and so a lot of his, like, business is from, like, Donetsk and, like, Donbass, right? So, yeah. obviously, he's been, like, significantly weakened because of the whole war. But he's... To show you how well off he was, he basically built Donbass Arena, which was Shakhtar's home stadium in Donetsk, by himself with his own money. Like, that's how much he loved the team. Yeah. Like, he loves the team. He built a whole stadium, like a five-star European stadium for his team. Yeah. And, so- like, at the grand opening, I think they had Rihanna or Beyonce singing. <laughs> oh, of course. So, at his highest, it's believed he was somewhere between $6 billion or $12 billion at his highest net worth. Um, now, in a country where people earn four hundred dollars a month. <laughs> I know, right? So this is where the interesting part comes. Uh, he's kind of a mysterious figure, <laughs> uh, you could say, because uh, in twenty fourteen he was actually photographed with. Uh, well, he was, sorry, he was actually spotted with Viktor Yanukovych during the Minsk peace conference, and. So, that shows automatically he has ties uh, to the government. And, I don't know, would you consider him an oligarch? Definitely. 100%. Yeah. There's, no, like, there's no other way to like, describe him, really. But out of all the oligarchs in Ukraine, he's the most shy. I mean, it's because like, he's been, like, significantly uh, affected by this. So, I think if he takes a stand, 
it's like really significant in a sense. So, I think yeah, staying out of, sh- of it is like his best interest. And even, but even then, he can influence things behind the scenes. With oh, he does. Like, he has his like people in parliament that are loyal to him. But mm. unlike Kolomoisky, he doesn't go out in public and sort of bash, try and show off his strength in a yeah. sense. I think he like, I think he works more behind the scenes. So, I think he'll more willingly go. And like to the presidential office and t- talk to the president, then go on like TV and have a rant. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's interesting is the United States actually denies him visas to get in, but he it's been um, reported that he actually goes and visits the U.S. embassy in Kiev a lot. So there's al- already a tie there to um, U.S. politics. And more interestingly, uh, he's actually been tied to Donald Trump's 2016 can- uh, campaign when he was tied to uh, Trump's campaign ma- manager, Paul Manafort. And we-, we all know about Manafort's ties to Ukraine there. Well, Paul Manafort was the man responsible for electing Yanukovych as president. Yeah, so... Right there, you can see that his influence kind of extends beyond Ukraine. So, I just thought it was interesting that even within, you know, something that Ukraine loves like soccer, there's yet another oligarch tied into that. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the teams are owned by oligarchs. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, but it's just like, is there no place in, like, any part of Ukraine that isn't tied to some... Rich person. <laughs> but, like, in this case, right, um, Akhmetov isn't, like, like just, like, thinking about himself. So, uh, he did donate 9 million euros to uh, the Ukrainian Ministry of Health to help fight off coronavirus. So, he is helping in other ways. Yeah. Well, I get your point. That That's a good thing that he is doing there. But I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to see in if it was revealed exactly what his influence within par- or within parliament or the presidential office in Ukraine uh, would be. But anyway, so that's uh, that's just who backs Shakhtar Donetsk, fun facts. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Brianna, where is uh, <laughs> soccer in Ukraine going? Because I know this year's kind of been a bit hectic. So, next year, what's the plan? Well, it's definitely going to be a big year for soccer. Uh, so, every four years, the UEFA European Football Championship has been showcasing the continent's top talent since its inception in 1960. And UEFA Euro 2020 will celebrate 60 years of the tournament and will be played as a Euro for Europe in the summer of 2021 across 12 host countries and cities for the first time ever. So, a total of 12 European cities, including Amsterdam, Baku, Bilbao, Bucharest, Budapest, Copenhagen, Dublin, Glasgow, London, Munich, Rome, and St. Petersburg, will deliver 51 matches across 31 days of competition. And the tournament will run from the 11th of June, 2021, to the 11th of July, with the final being played at Wembley Stadium in London. Ukraine is in Group C alongside Austria, Netherlands and North Macedonia and will play their first match against the Netherlands on the 14th of June next year. So, action-packed. Yeah, and Ukraine's finally got a good group that they should be able to win. Well, I don't know. You've said they've been doing pretty well over the years, so maybe they're getting better. Yeah, Shevchenko's done a lot with the team to make them win more consistently, but I think for once they've actually been given a good draw. Um, usually Ukraine is drawn into the group of death with like two super soccer powers and it's like, yeah, we're not going to do well. Oh, well, wishing the best and uh, see what happens. Yeah, and I think like as um, we highlight on our short news segments quite regularly, 
whenever Ukrainian teams do well. So we've been Real Madrid twice this year with Shakhtar. Should be good. In the news this week, Ukraine's language ombudsman has announced that the service sector should switch to only using the Ukrainian language from January 16, 2021. This is to conform with Article 30 of the Law of Ukraine on ensuring the functioning of Ukrainian as an official language. All service providers, even foreign-owned ones, are obliged to serve consumers and provide information about their goods and services in Ukrainian. However, customers can still request that their personal service be carried out in another However, customers can still request that their personal service be carried out in another language. Shakhtar Donetsk has pulled off another shock 2-0 victory over Real Madrid. The match was played in Kiev, and while Madrid dominated possession during the match, they were unable to actually score. Shakhtar Donetsk is now tied for second place in their UEFA Champions League group and only need to tie in their final match to progress to the knockout stage. On December 1st, Ukraine celebrated 29 years since the independence referendum which confirmed the August 24th Declaration of Independence. In this referendum, over 90% of Ukrainians supported the country's independence. Also, on December 1st, a protest movement became a revolution. In 2013, Yevromaidan protests escalated into a national movement after Yanukovych's police force beat peaceful students on Ukraine's Maidan Square. Many Ukrainians saw this as a turning point in their history and felt that a failure to respond would lead to a Russian-style authoritarianism. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UKLife Abroad content.